Uh, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, Christ is risen. So um, I'm really excited, uh, <clears throat> a bit scared, but a lot uh, excited uh, to share with you what I hope is the beginning of a series of reflections on marriage and family life. And today, uh, I just want to kind of set the foundation, the premise. So those of you uh, who are married, we're going to revisit some of the things that happen on your wedding day, which should be delightful. Uh, if you're not married, uh, this is really where my heart is. I really uh, want this to extend to the youth um, who are thinking about marriage uh, so that we could contextualize it, put marriage where it belongs uh, as a mystery in the church. Um, so what I want to do is just lay out some principles about marriage and family life from the most general spiritual to the most specific material aspects of marriage. Um, so what I will share with you, um, I'll say some of it, is definitely the official teaching of the Orthodox Church. And some things will come out of my mouth that are just my personal opinion. But um, it's not kind of an arbitrarily personal opinion. It's a personal opinion based on also me being a licensed marriage family therapist for over a decade. So um, I, w which means I, I'm a beginner uh, in understanding marriage and family life. But I want to share some things with you. Uh, so my recommendation is you approach this topic as if you knew nothing about it, as if this is the first time hearing it, which is the way we should approach any topic, right? A sense of curiosity, openness, willingness to engage. Um, you have to labor to understand and make the connections to certain things that I'm saying. Uh, and I have to labor to not say anything that's contradictory to the Holy Spirit. But you as a listener really need to labor and go past my own limitation into finding something that's life-giving, useful uh, for you. So today, uh, like I said, I just want to lay the, the uh, some basic fundamentals regarding Christian marriage. So the first thing we, we want to acknowledge that Christian marriage, like the Holy Scripture, um, is an unattainable ideal. So we can even just take a poll right now. Uh, if you believe that you uh, follow the Holy Scripture uh, wholeheartedly, word for word, raise your hand. Okay, so for the sake of the recording, that's 0% of the audience. <laughs> if you follow the Holy Scripture uh, to the T, raise your hand. <laughs> still a zero. Nagy had to con uh, contemplate it, but still a zero. Um, so what we're saying is there's a sacred text that's incredibly important that all of us you know, claim to uh, know and, and commit to and, and surrender and obey, and yet none of us follow it. Um, 
what we do with that is, the, what the world does with that is say, get rid of it. That doesn't make any sense. You're saying you have a text that's an ideal that you can't, you can't follow. So what do you do with it? You get rid of it, right? We say, no, we don't get rid of it because it's not there to make me feel good that I have fulfilled it. It's there as a guide and as a tutor, right? It's there to instruct me, to help me. And then when I come to it, uh, it holds up a mirror for me. And it says, listen, this is who you are. This is where you're at. This is what you're doing. And so the scriptures then become uh, a guide and a tutor, a teacher, one that I sit under the feet, so to speak, of the scripture, and the scripture teaches me. Marriage is the same thing. Some of the things that we're going to talk about today are ideals that the first thing you're probably going to say well, since you're saying this, do you do this? And I'm going to say, no, <laughs> I don't. And you're going to say, well, why? That's quite hypocritical of you. And I'm going to say, no, because the understanding is the only person who fulfills this is Jesus Christ. Um, and that's, that's exactly the dividing point between Christian and non-Christian marriage. So if you're lost, that's good. That's where you should be. Um, the commandments are not there, so we could feel good when we have kept them all. They're there so that they could be a witness uh, to what we're doing and to be a guide and to be a tutor. And so just like the scriptures, uh, marriage is going to be an unattainable ideal set by Christ himself, and we want to take a look at it. Now, it's interesting uh, that in the church, there are these two paths. There's a third, but the third is a little bit murky. Um, and, and usually the fathers don't like the third. Um, the first one is that there are two paths to salvation. The first one is marriage. And the second one is the monastic life. And so if, you know, you were in college and you're about to finish college um, and your spiritual father is speaking to you and, ah, what do you, what do you plan on doing? Maybe in our day and age, the, the monastic life thing is not even a, a consideration. But for many people throughout the church history, for the most part, that was a consideration. Um, and so this is something that you considered. But it's interesting because when you look at scripture, when someone approaches Christ and says, Lord, what can I do to be saved? He never says, go get married or uh, find a monastic community or, or go out in the wilderness and become a monk or a nun. Right? He doesn't say that. When we look at scripture and the question is presented, what do I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Christ's answer is usually uh, deny yourself, bear your cross, love profoundly, right? Love with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the things that he's telling you. Uh, but growing up in the church, you have these two options. You're either getting married or um, you're entering into a monastic community. 
Well, the third, which is, um, like I said, uh, uncomfortable and unliked by, by majority of people, which is to just live celibate in the world. But if you go to your spiritual father and say, Abuna, I'm, I think I'm going to just live celibate in an apartment in Irvine, he's probably going to squirm a little bit in his seat. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and we won't get into it today, but um, I, I think most of us grew up thinking this, if it wasn't explicitly taught, you at least thought about it. And I admit, I thought about it this way. Those who go into the monastery are really serious about their spiritual lives. They want to devote their life to God. And those who get married, they just, they want to take it easy a little bit. They want to have some fun. They want to enjoy life. Um, and they don't want to be so serious about being, quote, quote, religious, right? And in Egyptian, they have a lot of sayings for this. They'll say, like, uh, sometimes for the Lord and sometimes for the, your heart. Like, like you know. So I want to say to you that there has been nothing so opposed to the truth in the scripture as this idea. There's nothing so opposed to scripture than this idea that the person who wants to uh, really pursue life in Christ and pursue the gospel, they should go into the monastery. And if you just kind of want to be a Sunday Christian, you just kind of get married. Everything that I will present to you today is um, in opposition, direct opposition of this idea. So um, what we know and what the church is teaching us is that every Christian is called to holiness. And every Christian is called to die. And um, we don't, it, this is not like a covert thing. Like it's very explicit. You um, are a person off the street and you enter into the doors which are in the west and you say, I'd like to join your community, right? Typically we just say, yeah, sure, just enter into the room right next to the, the western door. Yes, that baptismal font, you gotta go in there and you gotta die. You gotta die. And once you die, then you live. So someone says, okay, fine. Uh, but then now I want to uh, pursue life in Christ. I have been baptized. Oh, fantastic. You want to go to the monastery? Great. Uh, you have to die. And so literally, the, the veil of the altar is taken off. Uh, the monastic person would lay on the floor, and they would cover his body, her body, and they would pray the prayer of the departed. And brother, sister, you need to die. You need to die to yourself. Um, well, what about marriage? Surely we could escape death in marriage. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, no. Um, this is something which is just incredible that we, we like, incredible that we miss this. Um, 
before I get, I get what happens in, in marriage, so we have, um, we have death as the initiation into the Christian life, death as the initiation into monastic life, death as the initiation into marital life, death as the precipitant to the resurrection. So if you don't die, you don't resurrect. If you're unwilling to experience death, you are unworthy of receiving life. That's, that's a principle, uh, a Christian Orthodox principle to live by. And I would say that's probably a dogmatic teaching of the church, not personal opinion. I will give some heretical personal opinions that's to come later. But this, I would say, is the official like teaching of the church. Unless you die, there I you have no life. Because those are the words of Christ. And so we're saying fundamentally that marriage is a pathway that leads both man and woman to union with God through death. The pathway to heaven or union with God is the way of the cross. And the joy of eternal life is rooted in the pain of the cross. If we embrace the cross because we understand it to possess our salvation, we encounter the power of resurrection. Uh, listen to one, uh, one father, um, Artemin Dreit in the Lianos uh, of the monastery of Mount Athos. He says, whenever two people are married in the name of Christ, they become the sign which contains and expresses Christ himself. When you see a couple who are conscious of this, it is as if you are seeing Christ. Together, they are a theophany. In other words, uh, a couple, they reflect Christ himself. The family, as we understand it, is actually the best icon of Christianity that we can think of. It is love which is characterized by self-emptying that brings forth a new life in children. And this new creation, children, are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the dead in their own parents' eyes and in their own parents' lives. So a parent living in repentance is the icon of the resurrection. Okay, so far, theological, theoretical, um, uh, this doesn't explain to me all the annoyances and my grievances and my struggles. Um, I still want to understand it a little bit better. So I want us to go into the uh, marriage ceremony. So we talked about initiation through death as in baptism, as in monastic life. So what happens in the marriage? So the first thing that happens is that, um, well, you have two ways uh, of doing this. Um, initially, the, the groom, the groom is coming in to the church with a procession of ipuro. O king of peace, grant us your peace. And then there is a, Th th there is a um, 
a part in the hymn that says, disperse the enemies of the church and fortify her that she may not be shaken forever. So the hymn is traditionally chanted for Christ, but it's chanted when the bridegroom or the groom is entering into the church. And so the bridegroom meets with his bride in front of the altar. And what do you see? Well, you see that the bridegroom at some point in the ceremony is given a, a cape, a priestly cape. And the, the spouse, the wife, is also given a cape. Well, he is called to be a, a, a priest, and she is called to share in the ministry of the priesthood. They're also given a crown. And they're given a crown because they are co-creators. They begin to be an icon of the Holy Trinity. They create in that they will sacrifice themselves for their partner and in sacrificial love from them will proceed new life. And in that, they are a light, a reflection of the Holy Trinity. And then there's instructions that are given to love one another, to submit to one another, to give one's own body to the other, because the other is another me. Right, that's the idea. I give my body to the other because the other is an other me. And um, where do we get this from? Where do we learn this from? Um, Christ. Uh, it, it said that this, this here, this, these are, this is the member of Christ, the individual members of who? The body of Christ. So he proclaims that, he tells us, you, 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 you are my body. And every time you walk to the altar and you take of the body and the cup, you become part of me and I become part of you. And so in Christian marriage, the, the other is an other me. Um, in the ceremony, we're also hearing uh, St. Paul being read from the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, that husbands ought to love their wives as their own body, how as Christ does the church. Um, and then when we look at St. Paul's teaching on love, if you were to stop in the ceremony and say, just quick question, uh, there's a lot of talk about love going on. Can you just um, give us a definition of love? And St. Paul says, sure. Um, so his definition of love has nothing to do with, with feelings. So he's not going to describe to you how that feels. He's going to say, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own 
is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And at some point, uh, crowns are brought out and the crowns are placed on the head of the bride and the bridegroom. And what are the bride and the bridegroom should be thinking in that moment? I'll tell you, when, uh, when I was getting married and the cape came out and the crown came out, I had no spiritual thought about it. I was just like, this is pretty cool. That's all I thought. Do you know what I should have been thinking? This is a celebration of, of my own martyrdom. Like I am in my appearance suggesting that I'm going to die for this person. That I am going to deny my will, deny my preference, deny my pride for this person. And the church even makes it more explicit in that while the crowns are on the bride and the bridegroom, they make them um, um, almost kneel towards each other. So their heads are touching, but they're only touching when you kneel. In other words, your oneness only comes when you submit to each other. When you break your pride, you create a sense of oneness. But you can't do it standing shoulder to shoulder. This is such an important thing. I really want you guys to like, Stay with me on this. Are you, you, you're getting me? Like if you stood shoulder to shoulder, you would never touch crowns. And in order to do it, you have to bend. You have to kneel in order for the crowns to, to touch. And the church is saying, unless you submit in this way, you will not be one. Unless you forgo your ego, your pride, you break that, you will not be one. It's such a sad tragedy that during this time, I had no idea what was going on. Nobody told me this. I had no idea. I was just like, that's pretty cool. And then someone said, hey, look over here and smile. And I'm like, why didn't someone tell me this? What a tragedy. So um, the priest in blessing the crown says, bless these crowns which we have prepared to be set upon your servants. And then he says, crowns of blessing and salvation. Crowns of blessing and salvation. Then crown them with glory and honor. Right? So there's the death. There's your death. Right? Your salvation is in loving um, sacrificially in loving with the love with which Christ loved and dying to your own ego, dying to yourself and then being blessed with glory and honor. I mean, that really is the essence of Christian marriage. So then the rings are presented, um, but something happens here which is different from engagement. So when you were engaged, you uh, you probably were somewhere on the beach and did something like really romantic and you got on your knee and 
you took out a ring and you said, you know, will you marry me? And um, and you took the ring and you put it on on her finger, right? You um, you made the say in doing this. And if you decide at that point after the engagement that you want to take off uh, the ring, you no longer want to be engaged, that's your prerogative. The church has no problem with that. So you take off the ring and you're no longer engaged. But what happens in the marriage ceremony? The rings are brought out and the husband gets excited. I'm going to put on the ring. And the priest goes, no, 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 hands off. I do it. I put the ring on. How come? Oh, well, because that's not something that you are able to break off. That's the church. The, sacrif- the church is blessing this union with Christ. And the only one who can break off this marital union is the church. And that's why it's the church who puts the ring on, not you, no matter how handsome you are on that day. So the rings are presented, but it's different from the engagement in that the man and the woman who put on the, uh, the man and the woman um, are not the ones who put on the rings on each other, but it's the church. Then what happens? So they have been crowned. Uh, they're wearing the cape of priesthood. They're, they're co-ministers, co-creators with God in the ministry. And then they do something. They come together and they kneel before the altar. They kneel before the altar. And it's saying we submit our life, our will to God and accept his direction and his instruction above all. This is really important because sometimes when there's marital conflict and one of the spouse says, I'm not going to Abuna. I don't care what anybody says. This is my position. And we have to remember, like you bowed before the altar in order to say, I submit my life, my will to God and accept his direction and his instruction. And sometimes the direction and the instructions that we get from the altar don't feel good. They don't feel comfortable. They're not comforting. You may want to even be escaping the relationship And then you may get instructions that say, love your spouse as Christ have loved the church. Love and forgive and uh, believe all things. Believe all things. And it may not be what you want to hear. Um. It's interesting because people do something which is a little bit contradictory. They'll say in, in times when they have marital conflict, they'll say, I want to go see a therapist, but they have to be an Orthodox therapist. Um, and then they go see an Orthodox therapist, and then the Orthodox therapist says, you really need to go to confession. This is going to help your relationship. And the person says, no, I don't want to go to confession. I know what Abuna is going to say. I need help. It's like the reason why you sought out an Orthodox therapist is to get Orthodox counseling, but you're rejecting it because 
you are rejecting the teaching of the church, which is um, our own sense of, uh, that's, that's our ego at work, which is fine, but we have to just be aware of it. That's our ego at work. I'm not going to submit to someone else. I'm going to fix this the way I want it, and I'm going to do the way that it feels or it feels right to me. Um, so when you kneel, when I knelt before the altar, it meant that I was going to submit my life, my will to God and accept the direction and instruction that he is to provide for me. And then um, what happened after that, here's a moment to gloat. Um, I got married within a liturgy. So I got to take communion with my wife and we used one, uh, whatever Lefebvre is called in English. Um, but so after we knelt, right, we celebrated the liturgy and then communion came out and we part partook of the communion together. So it meant that the life you share as married couple is nothing other than unity with Christ. So when you go through the ceremony, you see that we, you know, if, if, if you parse out the pieces, you have people who, as a result of love flowing from their heart, want to sacrifice their life to Christ. So they come to be martyred, right? They dress really nice, but they come to be martyred, to live in self-denial, right? And to give to each other, to give your heart, your life, your love to each other. And then to bend, bend your will, uh, which is symbolized physically by yielding each other's crowns and bending down and having the cross be placed on top of the crown. In other words, Christ rules over you. Yes, I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you the priesthood. I'm giving you the ability to be co-ministers. But don't ever forget that the cross rules over you. You're not the final say in the house. You are not the final say in the house because the cross rules over you. Right? This is all symbolized in the very rite of the service. Um, and they proceed, they take communion. And then another beautiful thing happens, which is the bride and the groom are, are, uh, enter into a procession around the church. And the procession around the church symbolizes the unbroken life together. Unbroken life together. Eternity. By the way, um, you know, in other Christian traditions, they say, they, they exchange vows and they say, till death do us part. No such thing in Orthodox tradition. Uh, because in Orthodox tradition, marriage is, uh, is for eternity. But that's an important concept because uh, later on, when we talk about sex before marriage, one of the prime reasons why we say no sex before marriage because sex is supposed to be eternal as well. Sex is for eternity as well. Uh, but we'll get there. But um, marriage is eternal. And so, but when the church fathers speak about it, they'll say, yes, it's eternal, but it's going to look different than how we experience it now. And one of the reasons it's going to be different is because the boundaries and limitations are different. Right now, if you walked into my house, I'm going to be like, uh, you're in my house. And if you walked in my bedroom, I'm going to be like, this is kind of awkward. You're in my bedroom. 
right? So, so the boundaries that define like these spaces are just not there. And maybe I have a particular love towards my wife and my child that's different from yours, but that will be transformed as well. So there won't be no phys- there won't be the physical boundaries that that necessitate um, like personal space and, and, and so on. And our, our, our sense of love will be transformed, but that person will still be to me a unique person, different, a unique person, different. The other who is me, even in the kingdom of heaven. If you dislike your spouse, this is probably a tragedy for you. <laughs> You're like, no, not even after death, I guess. Um, but this is beautiful. Even in the kingdom to come, the other is the other me. Um, I want to say a quick, uh, quick uh, note, and then I'll, I'll end. Um, <coughs> the particular path in itself isn't what's salvific. Not everybody who enters the monastery is saved, and certainly not everybody who gets married is saved. There are many people who enter the monastery who are monastics, who are very driven by self-will, and love of power, and love of position, and uh, may may be corrupted inside of them. The same thing, not everybody who's married uh, is saved through the process of marriage. And so what's important for us, it becomes salvific if we encounter Christ in our marriage and in encountering Christ, we encounter ourselves broken, sinful, and yet loved. And both of those things have to be experienced. And I would say, I said I was going to say this and stop. Uh, and stop. I, I lied. I'm going to say one more thing. I would say um, one of the the beautiful things about marriage is that your spouse becomes to you uh, a mirror and a blanket. You know, before I got married, I had a sense of who I am that was completely distorted. Like I'm I'm a nice person. I'm really humble. I'm really giving. I'm little. But when you get married, your most intimate partner holds a mirror for you. And what you discover is you're not so humble, you're not so loving, you're not so gracious, you're not these things. And that's a painful process. So your spouse becomes your mirror, but your spouse also becomes a blanket where you're like, oh, I really hate what I'm seeing. This is disturbing. And and then your spouse wraps you in a blanket and holds you and says, yes, but you're lovable and you're lovely. This is why then it becomes a mystery because your spouse can only wrap you in this blanket if they themselves have been wrapped with the same blanket through repentance and confession. And so in practicing the, mi- mi- um, in, in practicing the mysteries of the church, uh, marriage will become salvific, will become a way for us to be transformed, illumined, and experience the resurrection. Um, 
I'll end with this story. Or maybe I won't. We'll stop here. Uh, glory be to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Uh, if you have any corrections, comments, disagreements, propositions, anything? Um, we'll just honor honor the time and we'll stop we'll stop here. Anything anything else? Comments, questions? Anything related to the content that you feel like you're like, no, this doesn't sound right. Anyone? Yeah, so some of the things that, that uh, in the uh, upcoming uh, talks, we'll talk, about um, we'll talk about communication, we'll talk about intimacy and sexuality, and the connection between confession and sexuality. We'll talk about vulnerability, we'll talk about um, you know, various things related to, to marital life. The nature of problems, two sets of nature of problems, solvable and unsolvable problems. What's the purpose, the essence of unsolvable problems? What do they do for us? Um, and if you've ever been uh, in a conflict with your spouse, you know that there are certain topics that are unsolvable. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you dice it, no matter how many times you've talked about it, it's unsolvable. But it's there for a reason. Uh, and I think there is, uh, there's a very good reason why it's there. And that's something that we'll get into. What do you do with unsolvable problems? Uh, and that we'll spend some time on it. We'll really uh, open it up and spend some time on it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so delving down on like what's the tangible aspect of, of mystery, right? Yeah, um, except that it, it, the word is used because it communicates something to us that's, that's divine, that's spiritual, that isn't always perceptible, but we can kind of delve into that again in the future. Any other uh, thoughts, questions, comments? So the, the question is, uh, people who are Orthodox, but they're married outside of the Orthodox Church, and they end up breaking off, uh, can they come into the church and then get married? Is that what you're asking? Oh. Is it considered marriage? Yeah, um, you know what's interesting is that yeah, yeah. So, so your question, so your question is, if someone got married like civilly, not in the church, um, what's the what's the follow up to that? 
can they remarry in the church? And you Oh, um, you know, I that's probably outside of uh, of uh, my scope. Uh, probably that's more of a pastoral issue. Uh, so whether is this? I think the question is: Is this considered a first marriage then, in the church? Um, I, I think that falls in the realm of of confession and repentance and how how the church wants to kind of um, approach that probably not for me to speak on that yeah anything anything else all right let's pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name